This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on the political chaos of the last four days and counting. Columnist Zoe Williams meets the woman who may have just changed the fortunes of Love Island, Ekinsu Jujudala. And writer Amelia Tate reveals how our body clocks can improve the effectiveness of everything from our nutrition to Alzheimer's. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, who would think a lying, hypocritical degenerate was the answer to this crisis? A large number of Conservatives, apparently. Marina Hyde on the prospect of Bojo 2.0. Read by Colleen Prendergast. If you feel physically breathless at the current state of British politics, that's just Boris Johnson immediately sucking all of the oxygen out of the room again. Is the dignity vampire coming back? Unclear. But I know we're all big fans of lettuces now, so be advised, there could be a monstrous 16-stone slug waiting to crawl out of this one and burrow straight into your brainstem. With a poll on Friday putting them just the 39 points behind Labour, a genuinely tragic number of Conservative baiters seem to think that only Johnson can fix this slash save their jobs. They desperately, desperately need you to think of the UK government as a state-of-the-art technology that only functions when unlocked with Boris Johnson's unique biometric pass. And yet, does it? Does it operate only when Johnson's eyes meet its retinal scan? Does it crave to recognise his handprint, like so many spirited but troubled young women before it? On the vanishingly outside chance that this is the case, can we not simply do as the movies have taught us, forcibly borrow or cut off the relevant Johnson body part and just get things working that way? The UK is in a political crisis layered on top of an economic crisis, which itself has needlessly exacerbated an already dire cost-of-living crisis. The idea that the answer to a single part of this horror show is to bring back a morally degenerate financial incontinent who broke his own laws is something that tells you everything about the terminal sad sacks who are so much as thinking of it. The formal parliamentary investigation into Johnson's last truth-aborting period in office is about to begin. If it ends up censuring him for misleading Parliament over the number 10 lockdown parties, as is perfectly likely, then we'd be in a constitutional crisis too. Maybe crises are cheaper when you buy in bulk. The fact his name is even being mentioned suggests the Conservative Party has failed to learn the lessons of the first wave of Boris Johnson and to plan for the second. Any rays of light in the worst-case scenario? The return to power of Roman dictator Cincinnatus, famously mentioned by Johnson in his recent leaving speech, lasted just three weeks, by choice. Though, if Johnson clocks up even that many days back in power, it'll feel very much longer. 
as indeed did Liz Truss's tenure as Prime Minister, despite being shorter than the seven-week leadership contest that put her there. At the current rate of executive disintegration, I'd give it three months before someone's unfurling an ironic Truss in banner behind Rishi Sunak slash Penny Mordaunt slash Johnson at PMQs. As things stand, Truss leaves with up to £115,000 a year office expenses for life on the back of just 44 days in post, with the Tories effectively now acting like the Football Association did for so many years, paying all their expensively terrible choices millions of pounds to go away. If you wanted to make a mood board of the past 48 hours, you'd need Therese Coffee to bung you some illegal sedatives and a wall the size of the Hoover Dam to mount it all on. But given that we're all condemned to play psychodrama Pinterest, here are a few key images. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who'd be a first-round KO for Monty Burns, being accused of manhandling people in the voting lobbies. Johnson, during a parliamentary session, cocktailing his arse off for his Uxbridge constituents on a sun lounger in the Dominican Republic. Penny Mordaunt acting like the Unity candidate. Suella Braverman acting like the Unity Mitford candidate. Brandon Lewis taking soundings to see if he was going to be the Fortinbras in all this. You unable to meet your own gaze in the bathroom mirror as you whisper, Maybe, oh God, maybe... Sunak, I suppose? The mirror cracking. Elsewhere, Graham Brady and Jake Berry looking shifty as they explained the vote could well end up in the hands of the party membership again. Sorry, but if this does come to pass, it can't be online. Voting should instead take place in Westminster Hall, with Conservative members required to queue and present themselves for the BBC livestream. That way, if rogue actors such as Putin or rogue presenters such as Phil and Holly wish to upset the delicate balance of this ancient rite, everyone can see them doing it. At the time of typing, many think that surely Johnson won't get the numbers to run. Then again, we passed surely three what-the-fucks ago. Even his own backers couldn't quite seem to believe it on Thursday night, with one anonymous acolyte telling The Telegraph, It is too early. In autumn next year, the party will be on its knees. He is walking into a shit show he can't control. They need to be on their knees. On their knees? Unbidden, this reminds me of that moment in the documentary about the fire Festival, another story of disastrous allegiance to a charismatic boss, where an otherwise sane-seeming man looks into the camera and says of a customs official refusing to release them some Evian water, I got to his office fully prepared to suck his dick. For now, we must bed in for days of Conservative MPs openly hissing about the damage other Conservative MPs are doing to the party, as though the crisis-convulsed country were some distant afterthought. That's not just a hideously revealing way of talking, but a profoundly warped way of thinking. It's precisely this level of conservative solipsism that got us here. And we all know the old lines. They simply can't lose their reputation for competence. If they're not careful, people might just stop looking to them for stability. Only they can fix the mess they inherited from themselves. We've heard all this stuff so many times before that there are uncontacted Amazon tribes who know it backwards. Yet, the next week will be taken up with yet another binfire of the vanities. Out there in the real world, though, is where the serious fires are raging. Stories of child hunger pour in from teachers every day. This week, an elderly patient died after hours in the back of an ambulance outside a Manchester hospital because there were no beds. There are vast black holes in the public finances and the markets have demonstrably put the UK on suicide watch. Half the country doesn't work properly anymore and all of the country knows it. Of the MPs who can surely see all this yet are still going ahead and backing Johnson today – what can honestly be said, other than, 
Their struggle is finished. They have won the victory over themselves. They love Big Boris. That was Tories on Their Knees. And here comes Boris Johnson. Dear reader, look away. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, she sashayed into the Love Island villa as just another bombshell, but stole the show. Now she's got a £1 million fashion deal, TV gigs, and a hot Italian boyfriend. It got Zoe Williams pondering, has Ekin Sujadulala raised the bar for reality TV? Read by Serena Manteghi. During the audition process for Love Island, the producers ask potential contestants to draw their ideal partner. Ekin Suljuljulolo, who won the latest season, along with her boyfriend Davide Sacramenti, tells me what she drew. I didn't draw someone with a six-pack, she says. I just drew a stick man. I put stuff which was not based on the looks, which is really weird because I've ended up with someone who cares about his appearance. I put cultured, family-oriented, loyal, Confident, not cocky. Someone who works out and prioritises that. Someone strong, my age. She's 28, as is Sacramenti. The producer said, that's really mature because most people come in here saying, I want a man who's 5 foot 10, big willy, someone who can carry me, tall, dark and handsome. Really basic. We are sitting in her PR firm's office in Covent Garden, London, and she looks ready for anything. A club, the gym, a red carpet maybe, except perhaps a normal Wednesday morning. It's not that she's especially made up or even dressed up, bra top, leggings, cardigan. Rather, it's the peculiar Love Island cocktail of perfection and enhancement. Innate gorgeousness plumped with fillers, so that all its stars, Jujulolo in particular, look like humans who have been put through a filter, the Instagram version of real life. On screen, she's very bombshell. Big hair, big lips, pneumatic. In real life, she looks wider-eyed, more Disney princess. Born in London to Turkish parents, Juljul Olo was living in Istanbul, dividing her time between there and Essex, working as an actor, and hoping to star in a film about the Ottoman Empire when the call of destiny came. Whether you've seen it or not, you presumably know the principle of Love Island, But for those at the back, ten improbably good-looking people in their twenties, five men, five women, are taken to a villa to share five double beds in a constantly surveilled dormitory. New people arrive throughout the series to drive a wedge between existing couples or pair off with another new arrival. Juljulolo entered as one of these bombshells on day three. You cannot be single for long on Love Island which is possibly its most brutal and atavistic aspect, without the warmth of a mate, you will perish. During the day, they do challenges, which often seem contrived unless the contestants really bring their A-game, and sometimes they go on dates. This year, the public got to vote three days before the start on who should be coupled with whom, so they started off in pairs not of their own choosing. It's like dropping rats into a cage by their tails. Juljulolo was not only a fan favourite, but became people's favourite contestant of all time. New York Magazine called her the best reality TV star the world has ever seen and a total sweetie pie, which nails the mood. She has an idiosyncratic sense of humour, sometimes surreal, sometimes pathetic, sometimes so straight-talking you can't not laugh. She talks a good game about being a hard-ass. Indeed, her opening self-introduction featured the immortal line, I'm not here to make seasonal girlfriends, and then completely capsizes all that with her warmth. What looks at first like arrogance is actually a very post-pandemic brand of empowerment, and her self-love is endearing and fun to watch. Like a Labrador with a ball machine on TikTok. The drama she creates is knowing rather than histrionic. Love Island completed its eighth season this summer, and Jujul Alo is widely credited for the fact that the show, in defiance of reality TV convention, is somehow getting better, not worse. 
She has walked out of the villa with a spin-off travel show for ITV2, visiting Italy and Turkey with Sacramenti, the realistic prospect of a career in TV, a million-pound ambassador deal with the fashion label O Polly, thought to be the biggest deal of any Love Island contestant, and 3.2 million followers on Instagram. I had 350 on Instagram already, she says. I went in there knowing that I didn't need it. I could leave in the first week or the second week. I had the mentality of, if it doesn't work or I'm booted off, fine. She looks at me beadily, as if to appraise whether or not I'm young enough to know what 350 means and decides, on balance, probably not. 350,000, she clarifies. When I meet her, she's at the peak of her post-island fame. She hasn't had one day off since leaving the villa in August, has been to New York, LA. She is heading back to Italy the day after we meet, and a week later announces she is to appear on the next Dancing on Ice. Oh, and let's not forget that she found love, which is what she was looking for. There's a question mark over the romantic sincerity of any Love Island couple, given that there's a cash reward for whoever falls in love the best, and the relationships aren't always the most durable. Although, caveat, there are now as many Love Island babies, as in children born to pairs of former contestants, as there have been seasons. But fans and critics immediately remarked that Jujulalo really seemed to mean it, that there was nothing confected about her feelings for Sacramenti, and no underlying cynical self just in it for the screen time. Better still, they were constantly fighting, falling in love, falling out of love, falling back in again, in a way that appeared to be rom-com real, because, apparently, it was. Sometimes Davide would say, I don't want to do this show anymore, I don't want to see Ekin. And I would say the same. You know, I can't stand this guy. We have pride. I'm not walking to him first, he's not walking to me first. She famously got off with someone else, Jay, and then lied about it, prompting a mad soliloquy from Sacramenti, which ended in an analogy between Jojulolo and a knockoff handbag. She is never more magnificent than in combat, and she knows it. People said, you spoke out about how you felt when things were going wrong and most of the girls in there couldn't. Most of the boys in there couldn't either. Anyway, she has no regrets. Davide was very hard work at first. He was very closed. We would try and get to know each other. I'd get one-word answers. I thought, what's going on? This is Love Island. I'm going to have to try someone else. So sure, she's a romantic, but quite a pragmatic one. I was just thinking, you know what? I've had shit luck with boys. I'll try Tinder, Bumble and Love Island. This makes me laugh. The scale is all out of whack. It's like saying, you know what? I need a lift. I'll try Uber Bolt and Lewis Hamilton. Love Island is, of course, a dating option only for the beauty elite, but Jul Julolo never acknowledges her considerable beauty and is very insistent on this point. A lot of stories start, The director saw me sitting on my own. I caught his attention somehow. I don't know why. Or, A music producer filmed me on his phone and said, Who's this girl? It made no sense. When she was doing a drama degree at the University of Central Lancashire, one of her tutors told her she was very funny without knowing it, as if it were an accident. I don't think it's at all accidental. The insistent question of the Enterprise, certainly to the middle-aged viewer, especially in the case of someone who already has a career, is this. Why would you go on Love Island in the first place? Who would ever submit their entire private self to the public domain like this? It's not even, in essence, a question about sex, although the spectacle of people stripped to their pants, sharing a bed with a stranger and 360-degree camera coverage certainly has voyeuristic charge, even for the contestants themselves who are constantly monitoring one another's antics. It's a question about the self. If every emotion, at its most fragile incipients, is immediately visible to the whole world, who could withstand that? And what's left of you afterwards? Digital natives don't find this anything like as confusing as their elders. You could argue that their line between public and private has already been so corroded by the realities of their online existence that the distinction no longer troubles them. Or you could argue that their lifelong immersion in social media has made them much more sophisticated in their self-fashioning, 
so they know instinctively what's real and what's for Instagram. It's also useful to take a longer view, since it's not historically unprecedented, this constant performance of the intimate. In their declarations, their violent emotions, their sudden changes of heart, the contestants are a lot like Renaissance courtiers, except none of it rhymes. Jules motivation, as she characterises it, was almost anthropological. If Love Island wasn't a show, I would be on there regardless because of the experiment itself, she says. You don't understand. When you're in there, you are isolated ten days before. You don't have your phone. They're training you to forget the outside world. When you meet someone, there's nothing around you to distract you. You have no idea of the time. You don't know the date. You're just with your emotions. The experience of meeting Jujulalo is a lot like that of being on Love Island with her. On screen, we saw her immediately get everyone's backs up, well, those of the other women, just by being so confident. She is completely unabashed about her qualities, describing a childhood that was one triumph after another. My mum and dad knew there was something special in me, knew there was a performance side. I got a distinction in all my exams. I could have been a ballerina. My ballet teacher used to say to me, you've got very good feet for ballet. When we did school plays, the teacher would always know I was the girl who could sing, act, dance. I'd get the main role. Like if there was a Romeo and Juliet, I'd be Juliet. My music teacher used to say that I've got good music ears. But then gradually you start to fall for her. It's some combination of life force and generosity. She goes to a lot of trouble to make you laugh, and once you've surrendered to that, you no longer mind hearing about her great ears, feet, performances and GCSEs. You're listening to Love Island winner Ekin Sue on sex, spin-offs and surgery. I've not had anything major done. Okay, apart from the boobs, by Zoe Williams. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we're at the forefront of new technology. We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, We're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com. I'm Grace Dent. And I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Dono Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh, the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Zoe Williams' interview with Ekin Sue, read by Serena Mantegi. She whizzes through her childhood, achievement by achievement, sailing through school and a performing arts sixth form, doing brilliantly at university, signing up to an agent in Manchester and getting little adverts, but nothing major. She came to London in her early 20s to get an entry-level job in finance. I'd split up with my boyfriend, actually one of my true loves. He cheated on me. I was in a very strange state. I felt lost. 
My parents were divorcing at the time. I didn't know what to do. My family aren't wealthy. We're just normal people, average class. I had to make money. I couldn't leave uni and do what everyone else does, go travelling, partying. In 2020, unhappy in office life, she moved to Istanbul. She was talent-spotted in the audience of a theatre and was building a career on stage and screen in Turkey, appearing in the soap opera Kuzey Yıldız'a İlk Aşk, North Star First Love, when the pandemic hit. I was stuck in my flat for a year in Istanbul. Couldn't leave. No family, no friends. It was very strict out there. If you left your flat, you would get a fine. Everything was closed. It's the kind of COVID experience that could break a lot of people. But Juljul Alo says, I saw a lot of my friends on Zoom and everyone was getting absolutely pissed and I thought, they're losing their mental health. That's really not where I was expecting the story to go, but anyway. So I took the opportunity to read books about self-growth, psychology, the human brain, why we feel sad, why we overthink. I really got into it like it was my job. I started to do gym at home. I ordered these dumbbells, a treadmill. I was doing workouts, talking to myself in the mirror. I became my own friend. That's when I realised I don't need anyone. It's really weird. I didn't go crazy, I promise. I was just very independent. Self-reliance is a trait probably common to a lot of Love Island contestants. You could not submit to the endless judgement of others if you didn't have steel at your core. But it can go either way. Molly May Haig, a 2019 runner-up along with boxer Tommy Fury, quickly became the symbol of girl boss culture with a reputation for empire building. Haig got a lot of flack for saying that everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. The implication being that people who didn't hit gold weren't digging hard enough. If you're homeless, just buy a home, was how one detractor summarised it. But that's not Jujulalo's variant. She sees her resilience more as a quality built through 2020's adversity. You face your emotions when everything stops. You can go one way or another way. You could just give up and be an alcoholic and let yourself go and just blame the world for everything. Or you could think, this is going to be over soon. The world's not going to stop. People need their jobs. We're going to get back to normality. I'm going to make the most of this moment. She is, in other words, a toughie, which surely everyone in this mad petri dish of a show has to be. One of the strangest things about Love Island is the sight of them all wearing their microphones, whatever else they're wearing. They may be in a bikini, indeed, they're always in a bikini, and there will still be this contraption strapped to their waists. It's like a metaphor for how completely they've absorbed the artifice of the situation, that the surveillance is part of the body, needn't even be hidden under clothes. But that isn't the half of it. We wake up, we go to bed, we don't know what time. It could be 4am, 5am. The lights go off. We have our mics on 24 hours. If you take the mic off, there's a mic on the bed. There's a mic everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. You cannot fake it in there. After two days, your mask falls off. People hear you all the time. It sounds terrifying. Dystopian. An exercise in how to break people. And contestants do walk off though maybe not as often as you would expect. Two people left voluntarily this season, including one in the first few days. The show now prides itself on its pastoral care, but that's the product of a complex and tragic past. Two contestants, one presenter, Caroline Flack, and the boyfriend of one contestant have died by suicide since the current incarnation of the show launched in 2015. You can't draw straight lines on causality, but whatever producers can do to stabilise such a febrile scenario of their own making, Love Island's producers now do. You are looked after like a baby, Jojulolo says. If I cut my finger, a medical team would be there in two minutes with a plaster and a paracetamol. It's ridiculous. I think it's extreme care. Every day you'd have a Zoom call for an hour with a psych. You explain how you feel, how your day is, any problems... It's all confidential, you take your mic off. One time, early on, the other girls just came out and told her they didn't like her. 
This shades into managed reality since surely nobody ever does this in real life. I went into the zoo and burst into tears. I didn't understand, I was just being myself and the counsellor said, Ekin, you're being very strong. Sometimes that can intimidate people. Sometimes the situations on Love Island are so conveniently symmetrical or fairy tale. Betrayals, denouement, rivalries, passion, played out at the most apposite time that they feel almost scripted. But she insists nothing is. They're structured only insofar as contestants have these challenges, like party games for toddlers except with snogging. Other than those and the dates, the only time the producer would say something is if you're sitting on a beanbag doing absolutely fuck all. Like It's a show. No one wants to watch someone on a beanbag. Juljulalo seemed to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of bringing the drama, which is what she promised to do from the start. Because I bring drama naturally in life, whenever I'm out with friends, something happens, and I'm always involved or I cause it. One moment in particular stood out, where she competed with a Brazilian woman, Natalia Campos, to make the best pancakes. It was such an anodyne thing, it could have looked like crap bake-off, except they were so completely horrible to each other, it was electrifying. And Jojulolo, I have to say, started it. The producers must have really appreciated that, I suggest. No, she says. I'm going to change what you've just said. Bold. They wanted us to be nice, right? There are scenes in that that aren't shown. I was swearing. I chased her around with a wooden spoon. Actually, a spatula. That was real. I was very angry. But it wasn't shown because it's a PG show. I've got a really fiery side when people annoy me. It's the reverse of what I expected. I'd figured they'd edited out all the bits where she was calm. It's not a controversy so much as a talking point. But another sense in which Love Island is considered a problematic social influence is for the unattainable beauty standard it sets, and how unashamedly fake it all is. Establishing a norm in which anyone who doesn't look one Barbie way is just not spending or trying hard enough. Has the taboo around having cosmetic work completely vanished for this generation? People now realise you can't lie, she says. Nobody's stupid. It just makes you look fake if you say, I haven't had anything done, when you clearly have. Even though it's normalised, when Jadulolo watched the show back, she decided she would strip down, she says. Get rid of the blonde highlights, go back to my natural colour, I'm getting it dyed this afternoon. Whatever lip filler I have, I'm going to dissolve. I didn't like the fake look. I think natural beauty is a lot prettier. I've not had anything major done to myself, right? Okay, apart from the boobs. At what point with Love Island does reality TV become merely porn with incompetent camera angles? Whether or not you think porn is bad in and of itself, you'd probably agree that people should enter into it willingly and openly, and not be led down a complicated path via a series of semi-clad challenges. But here's the thing. No one has sex this year, Jadulolo says. Seriously? I'll tell you why. It's a new villa. There is this much space she indicates about 10 inches, between the beds. Who was going to have sex when there's cameras everywhere? People were doing things towards the end, like blow-drying. That was real. She has defaulted to the code contestants use during the show to describe sexual acts. But no one actually had their salon open. Even when I left the villa with Davide, we couldn't really relax. The time wasn't right. So, wait... They got into this entire relationship, which is now also a TV double act, inked the contract on the travel show, declared love in an amphitheatre in front of two troubadours, and had more fights than some people have had in a 20-year marriage before they'd even shagged. Yeah, she says, looking at me as if to say, what of it? If you can't judge Love Island by the success of its couples as they leave the show, which you really can't, people in their 20s split up the whole time, It is still reasonable to ask, what are those relationships like, forged in this bizarre way? She seems to really like Sacramenti, at least. If you look at him, you think, oh, what a handsome guy he is, but deep down he's got such a soft love. He's got a very pure heart. She is not being schmaltzy. She tells it to me straight. 
A relationship is about prioritizing each other, not being wrapped around a man. Being your own independent woman, being able to say, I don't need you, I want you to add happiness to my life. If you're not, then goodbye. When the winning couple left the villa, they stayed briefly at a hotel before they went home. What was that first night like? Davide went, Is there a camera here? Are they filming us now? We looked around the room for cameras. We were so paranoid. We were so used to the things. You think they're everywhere. They went straight into filming the travel show. I didn't realise how real reality was, Jojulolo says. Every minute they're filming us. We're a real couple. Every married couple argues. You don't have privacy. They were with us every day. I initially wondered what the relationship would feel like without cameras on it. But maybe the better question is, will there ever be a relationship that doesn't have cameras on it? That was Love Island winner Ekin Sue on sex, spin-offs and surgery. I've not had anything major done. Okay, apart from the boobs. By Zoe Williams. Read by Serena Manteghi. Finally, it's long been known that certain drugs work better when taken at specific times of the day. But, Amelia Tate reveals, now scientists are learning that our circadian rhythms affect everything from vaccines to meals, and even the results of exercise. Read by Vicky Lech. Your doctor tells you how many times a day you should take a pill, and whether to take it with or without food. But they very rarely tell you the exact time at which it has to be taken. Chronopharmacology also known as chronotherapy or circadian medicine, the idea that a pill popped at exactly the right time has maximum benefit, could be a major influence on the future of medicine. Increasing studies are showing that what time of day we treat disease can be crucial and that it's possible to pinpoint the time of day when certain disease is at its worst. In 1997, doctors in Denver split 59 asthmatics into three groups. The first group used steroid inhalers at 8am every day for four weeks. The second used the same inhalers, but much later in the day at 5.30pm. The third group dosed four times a day at 7am, 12 noon, 7pm and 10pm. At the time, this was believed to be the optimal regime. After a month, the results were in. The 8am group saw the least improvement, while an inhaler at 5.30pm had similar efficacy to one used at regular intervals. In short, taking a drug once was just as effective as taking it four times, provided you took it at the right time of day. Professor David Ray of the University of Oxford uses his own inhaler at the time when I think it's going to be most effective. The exact time is his secret, as we have to be careful about single-person anecdotes. As co-director of the Sir Jules Thorne Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, the asthmatic professor has conducted his own research into body clocks and respiratory disease. He also studies how matching medications with our circadian rhythms can improve the effectiveness of drugs. Chronopharmacology is a field filled with jaw-dropping studies to whip out at the pub. In 2011, researchers at the University of Birmingham monitored people who had their influenza jabs in the morning versus those who had them in the afternoon. One month on, the patients who received their vaccination between 9am and 11am had higher levels of anti-flu antibodies than patients jabbed between 3pm and 5pm. Our circadian rhythms are 24-hour cycles of biological activity that are regulated by our internal clocks, along with external cues, such as light. You sleep at night not just because your mum told you to, but because when your retina detects light, it inhibits the production of the hormone melatonin, stimulating wakefulness. Our body temperature varies by as much as half a degree throughout the day. Usually, we're coldest at 4am and hottest just in time for the news at 6. Our hormones, immune cells and organ functions also fluctuate. 
Mouse livers, for example, grow almost 50% in size during the day before shrinking at night. Many chronobiologists, chrono is the Greek word for time, believe we should use this information to improve medical interventions. Chronotherapy is an unusual field with both a long and short history. On the one hand, way back in 1698, English physician Sir John Floyer noticed that he had asthmatic fits after sleeping and therefore, by late sitting up, I have put by the fit for a night or two. There are also a number of decades-old groundbreaking studies, the Denver Asthma Report for one, as well as research undertaken in Canada between 1976 and 1991, which found that children given chemotherapy for their leukaemia in the evening had better disease-free survival rates than those treated in the morning. In some areas, timed medicine is already happening. For instance, many doctors prescribe certain statins, drugs for high cholesterol, to be taken at night to correspond with the time when your body produces the most cholesterol. But there is still caution. According to Robert Dahlman, a circadian biologist and biomedical sciences professor at the University of Warwick, the field is in many ways still emerging. There was, for a long time, a feeling that this was all much too complicated, he says. While Floyer might have noticed his asthma worsening at night, he wasn't equipped to know why. Notice was only really taken once the field started to get to the molecular mechanisms underlying lots of this, because before, it was mostly a black box, Dorman says. In 2017, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to three American geneticists who had discovered the molecular mechanisms controlling our biological clocks. In layperson's terms, the scientists had isolated a gene that controls the biological rhythms of fruit flies and found that this gene encodes a protein that accumulates within cells at night and degrades during the day. I think the nominators could see all this exciting science and see that it hadn't really translated into the clinic, says Ray. We are in a quite exciting time now where there's a lot of early phase work showing what massive potential there is here. Potential, of course, has pitfalls. If scientists discovered that flu vaccinations are more effective in the morning over a decade ago, then why isn't everyone being jabbed at 9am? Well, first, that would mean the NHS could only issue half as many jabs in a week. Second, it can be hard enough getting people to attend their immunisation appointments at all. Limiting them to a narrow window could mean that pregnant women with morning sickness miss their appointment, for example which is far worse than simply being jabbed in the afternoon. There's also the fact, Ray says, that health systems are bureaucratic. They're under financial pressure. It's like a super tanker trying to change course. And of course, healthcare providers don't want to jump the gun before enough evidence has accumulated. One 2021 study of 63 healthcare workers in China found that COVID-19 vaccines were more effective when given in the morning. Later that year, a study monitoring 2,190 healthcare workers in the UK found that COVID vaccinations had better efficacy in the afternoon. The vaccinations in both studies were different, but a number of other factors complicate analysis of the results. For example, neither factored in participants' medication history or sleep and shift work patterns. Then there's a matter of funding. For pharmaceutical companies, there are marketing and safety issues when it comes to producing drugs that should be taken at an exact time of day. What are the risks if someone takes it early or late? Already, approximately 30 to 50% of patients with long-term conditions don't adhere to their medication. But even without new medicine, chronopharmacology can be revolutionary. Ray says the field could rescue drugs that have previously failed clinical trials. It's not uncommon for a drug to be groundbreaking in mice and ineffective in human trials. But in 2020, researchers from Harvard Medical School published a study which found that preventative stroke strategies that had worked in rodents but failed in humans may have done so because rats are nocturnal. Many trials test rats in the daytime when they're inactive 
and tests humans during the day when they're active and awake. They were able to show that a lot of these promising drugs have probably been tested in humans at the wrong time of day, Ray says. That's millions and millions and millions of pounds wasted and all those volunteers recruited and subjected to a trial. The time of day a drug is administered could also change its side effects. So drugs that were written off as too toxic could actually be safe within certain parameters. To save money and save lives, Ray argues that many trials should have clock logic embedded into them. Let's say you need to take a drug at 8am for it to be effective and for whatever reason, needy kids, a hangover, a fundamental disdain for the morning, you can't. Theoretically, says University of Oxford pharmacology professor Sridhar Vasudevan, you could take one drug to change the timing of another, problem solved. Chronopharmacology isn't just about matching medicines with your circadian rhythms, it's also about creating medicine that affects the circadian system itself. Vasudevan became interested in circadian rhythms when he worked in psychiatry more than a decade ago. He noticed that sleep disturbance was prevalent across the board in depression, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. When something goes wrong in the brain that leads to a mood dysfunction, you have associated sleep dysfunction, he says. So Vasudevan theorised, if you can correct the sleep and circadian dysfunction, you can fix the other side, which is the mood. In 2016, Vasudevan co-founded a company in the Oxford Centre for Innovation named Circadian Therapeutics. He and his colleagues are identifying drugs to treat diseases related to circadian rhythm disorders. The team are currently working with blind veterans who have disrupted sleep cycles because lights cannot reset their circadian rhythms. Basically, they're constantly jet-lagged every single day, Vasudevan says. The idea is to have a drug that can mimic the effects of light on the brain so that they can take it once a day and stabilise their sense of time. Circadian therapeutics are also developing drugs to help those with neurodegenerative disorders. Sundowning is a phenomenon whereby some people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's become distressed and confused in the late afternoon. Vasudevan is looking into circadian modulators that could manage these symptoms. Of course, we shouldn't just manipulate our body clocks for the sake of it, as Vasudevan warns that taking one newly discovered drug to affect the timing of another could introduce extra risk. Still, there's potential. If the ideal time for you to take a drug is between 1am and 4am, most people are not going to wake up to take it, Vasudevan says. And sleep is extremely important in the healing process, regardless of what you're recovering from. In some circumstances, at some point in the future, taking one drug to change your circadian timing could help another drug work better. Drugs are not the only route to a healthy life. Chrononutrition and chrono-exercise are exactly what they sound like. In October 2021, a study from Harvard Medical School found that eating earlier affects the speed at which you burn calories and store fat. In short, the exact same meal could be far healthier eaten at 5pm than 9pm. In May, Academics from Skidmore College in New York found that women who exercised in the morning burned more abdominal fat and reduced their blood pressure more than women who exercised in the evening. But the later exercises had enhanced muscular performance. Before you start swallowing 10am pills and going on 3pm jogs, it's important to remember that our internal circadian biology does vary. Some of us are morning people and some of us are evening people. This characteristic is known as chronotype. Ray says your chronotype is affected by your age, gender and genes and argues that in the future we'll likely see personalised chronopharmacology based on the clock phase of the person rather than just going off the time on the clock on the wall. Dorman, who runs the Pathophysiological Molecular Clocks Lab at Warwick University, has already used his research to work out what personally works for him. I do implement some of the current knowledge on time-restricted eating, he says. 
and I choose my painkillers differently by time of day. Still, it's important to remember that for many medicines, the time of day they're taken doesn't matter at all. As Ray says, if the disease you are targeting doesn't change by time of day, then it doesn't matter what time of day you give the drug. If a drug has a long half-life, i.e. it takes weeks for the substance to reduce by half in your body, then the time of day it's taken doesn't matter because its concentration remains consistent. Skeptical scientists have also warned about being too enthusiastic. University of North Carolina biochemist Aziz Sankar has argued that when it comes to cancer, chronochemotherapy researchers have overstated positive findings and generalised from small studies in the past. But for now, and for many, chronopharmacology remains emerging and exciting. We have to be careful about overselling it. It can lead to dissatisfaction if you cry wolf, says Ray. However, we're at that point where it's exciting and people are increasingly aware of the field. We've done focus groups with patients, Ray says, and as soon as you say, we'd really like to hear your views about timing and how the time of day affects your disease, they're over the moon. Because finally, someone is listening. That was Time for Your Medicine, Unlocking the Power of Our Body Clocks by Amelia Tate. Read by Vicky Lech. Before we go, you might have heard an advert earlier for the launch of the fourth season of The Guardian's Comfort Eating Podcast with restaurant critic Grace Dent. Her first guest of the new season is Dawna Porter, who talks about her bohemian childhood in Guernsey, how her passion for oysters ended in undignified disaster, and how she found love on a dance floor with a Hollywood A-lister. Just search for Comfort Eating with Grace Dent wherever you get your podcasts. It's out now. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles are read by Colleen Prendergast, Serena Manteghi and Vicky Lech and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we bring the world together. Our aircraft connects communities, facilitating cross-cultural communication. Our satellite technology enables communication across the world and allows us to explore space expanding human knowledge to create a better future on Earth. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at airbus.com.